Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, we read through the Lutheran confessions, that, that faithful confession of what we believe, teach, and confess from Scripture in the Lutheran Church, especially the Missouri Synod. And to do that, we have our panel of folks. Uh, wait, I'm off. Ah, I messed it up. Bad transition. Uh, we have our cohort of Christ confessing Concordians. It's been a couple of weeks off, guys. I, You're using I lost all it. the wrong words. Yeah, I, I don't know <laughs> what's going on here. But we have our cohort of Christ confessing Concordians to do that as we read our way through the Lutheran confessions. And that cohort is made up of layman Peter Slayton, Pastor Peter Ill, Pastor Timothy Apple, and myself, Pastor Sean Smith. And we all have uh, titles and real jobs that we do in real life. Uh, Layman Peter Slayton, he's social media manager for the LCMS. Pastor Ill is uh, pastor at Trinity in Milstadt, Illinois. Uh, pastor Timothy Apple is, is it Grace Smithville? That's great. Are you there, Pastor Apple? Yes, sir. Can you hear me? I'm losing you. Uh, we'll work on that connection. Internet uh, but, connections, uh, yes. yay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then I'm pastor of uh, St. Paul's Wine Hill and Emmanuel West Point, uh, using also an internet connection today. We have the Peters in studio, and then Pastor Apple and I are uh, joining the uh, 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 wonderful technology of internet uh, as we, we gather together and read through this and, and gain knowledge. And, and for the last, uh, oh, I don't know, it's been a couple months here, we've been working our way through article uh, whatever it is, 27, uh, yep, got it there, uh, of monastic vowels and the apology of the Augsburg Confession. And uh, the other hosts have been working on this as well. And we're picking up with paragraph 47 on this today. Um, real briefly, as it's been a couple weeks for our team, uh, Pastor Ill, why don't you go ahead and uh, uh, give us a, a, a very brief summary, if you will, of what, what are we talking about in this article? Through this article, we're talking about the monastic vows that people thought were necessary for uh, monks and for good Christians to have, that it was really a better form of Christianity to be a monk or a nun or to have taken these vows of poverty and chastity and obedience. But here we see that uh, our, our faithful Lutheran confession says we are called to follow Jesus, not by orders of monasticism, but simply as he says, come follow me. As he called Peter and uh, James and John and Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel, and as he calls all of those who are his people, simply come follow Jesus where you are. Jesus doesn't set up a special spiritual class of monks and nuns, and there's no biblical promise that being a monk or a nun gives you more grace than the grace that Jesus himself won for you on the cross. Excellent. Thanks for catching us up. Uh, also, I was going to mention, 
if I can grab it here, sorry. Uh, we had, uh, one of the reasons I'm not in studio today is because uh, we had our circuit pastors winkled down here in Southern Illinois, and I was the host today. And actually, uh, we have a, as part of our, we study uh, the text together uh, of scriptures, and then we also take a look at uh, uh, a section of the Lutheran Confessions. And we've been working in our uh, circuit winkles here through um, the small called articles, which also has a couple articles uh, written, that's written by Martin Luther himself, uh, that uh, also deal with uh, these monastic vows and so forth. And I, and I thought it was interesting that uh, um, as part of our study on the small called articles, we actually had an, an excerpt from Thomas Aquinas here that uh, we've seen referenced in the Apology uh, of the Augsburg Confession as we've been working it through here. This is in his Summa Theologica uh, that uh, um, was brought for our study today. And he actually has a line in here, and uh, Thomas Aquinas has this line in here. He says, Hence we read in the lives of the fathers that by entering religion, one receives the same grace as by being baptized. And we've seen that referenced here on the show. Like this actually was in the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church at the time, where they are equating, uh, and what he means by entering religion is, is entering a religious service like monasticism and so forth. They are actually teaching uh, in the church that, uh, you know, it, it is a, a means of grace, a way to receive forgiveness of sins and and attain heaven uh, simply by uh, being a part of the monastic order. So I, I thought that that was interesting that uh, uh, we, we I don't know that we have specifically cited it on our show. It's been referenced in here in the Apology, but it really is a part of their teaching. And, and we've also talked about how this still impacts us some today. And so anyway, this is uh, uh, background and set up for where we uh, are going here. Uh, and I believe that we have Pastor Apple now joining us via phone. Uh, so uh, glad to have you with us. Uh, let's go ahead and test it out. This is bad radio, but we just got to do it. Are, are you with us, Pastor Apple? Yes, sir. Good to be here. All right. Not quite Yay. as good a connection when we have you on phone. Apple on Opal is better, but uh, <laughs> we are just so glad to have you with us as a, as a faithful confessor to, to add to our discussion. Well, let's just go ahead and jump to you then. Do you have anything to add to our discussion here as we set up uh, where we've been and, and what, uh, what we're going to be jumping into today? I'd say let's jump right into the text. All right, let's do that then. I'm going to go ahead and call on you then to begin reading for us at paragraph 47 there in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 27 of Monastic Vows. All right. So, Langton writes, Since the abandonment of property is merely a human tradition, it is a useless service. The praises in the extravagante are also excessive. This papal bull says that abandoning ownership of all things for God's sake gains merit is holy and is a way of perfection. It is very dangerous to praise so excessively a matter that conflicts with political order. But they say Christ speaks about perfection here. Indeed, those who quote the text in a butchered way violate it. Perfection is found in what Christ adds, follow me. That's from Matthew 19:21. Here he presents an example of obedience to one's calling. Because not all callings are the same, this calling does not belong to everyone, but only to that person with whom Christ speaks. In the same way, we are not to imitate the call of David to the kingdom or of Abraham to slay his son. Callings are personal, just as business matters themselves vary with times and persons. However, the example of obedience is general. Perfection would have belonged to that young man if he had believed and obeyed this vocation. So with us, perfection is that everyone with true faith should obey his own calling. All right. 
Thanks for reading that. All right, so I see things going on in here about this. Papal Bull says that abandoning ownership of all things for God's sake gains merit. Uh, so we got to figure out, uh, or at least identify, especially as we read through this, that we may have understanding. What's a papal bull? Um, and, and what's going on with this? And, and what's going on with this abandonment of property? And 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 what's what's their issue here? So go ahead, one of the Peters uh, in studio there, jump in. <laughs> Me? Okay. Well, I, I find it fascinating. Uh, I'll, I'll start off in this way, that we're constantly looking for ways to, to justify ourselves. And in this case, we're taking these statements of things that happened in Scripture and turning them into good works that people must do in order to earn merit here. It's really, really kind of odd. Um you know, so this papal bull saying you must abandon all ownership, it, it reminds me of Acts when, you know, the Christians came together and gave up everything they owned and gave it to the disciples to distribute to the poor. And now we have a papal bull essentially saying, well, that's what you're supposed to do, that this actually earns you merit before God. When the reality is in Acts, that's not what actually happened. This was a response to what God has done in the lives of these Christians. And as, as a fruit of the Spirit, if you will, they responded in this way. And here we're flipping it on its head, and the papal bull is saying, no, this is this is actually how it's supposed to work, so we're going to make you do this. Uh, we're, we're putting the cart before the horse again, which we keep, seem to keep doing. <laughs> it's almost like it's a part of our sinful condition or something, I right? know, you'd think it's part yeah. of our concupiscence. Yay! I, I mean, <laughs> Big words. <laughs> we... And, we... <clears throat> And, and Mr. Slayton, what is concupiscence now that we've rolled into big word yes, territory? It is. Well, and hit papal bull, too, since yeah. we, we still need to I'll, I'll do that. concupiscence and then pass off papal bull to somebody else. Uh, concupiscence is the my original sin, my, my state of enjoying my sin, of being sinful. Uh, not that it's like the essence of humanity, but it is... It is sin itself. We refer to it as original sin. If we're talking about the Augsburg Confession, we have Article 2 on original sin. I believe that's the right one, yeah? Yeah, Article 2. Woo! Um, that's a good place to go for an excellent definition of concupiscence, because I believe that's one of the first places us Lutherans actually use that term. But simply put, it's original sin. It, it is the state in which we find ourselves as human beings, and it's the state from which we need to be saved. That's why Christ came, is to address that very problem. And just in terms of identifying our terms, then, Pastor, I'll go ahead and uh, before I jump back to what we're, we were discussing here, let's also identify the term a papal bull. What, what's meant by that? A papal bull is a technical formal proclamation from the Pope uh, declaring something. And in these cases, he's declaring something doctrinal. Uh, namely against the Lutherans. Uh, in church history and in Lutheran history, we remember uh, mostly the papal bull that referred to Martin Luther as a heretic that was... Uh, that used the Latin words for arise, O Lord. Uh, but also we have here... Um, the extravagante uh, as a papal bull as well. Usually these, these bulls have Latin names, which is the first word of the, the statement, uh, otherwise known as a bull. All right. Well, now that we have some terms to uh, define and so forth, I want to come back to what you were saying uh, there, Layman Slayton, about, you know, and, and we've kind of made this point all throughout the apology, and, and I 
you know, was, was on the show back when we were working on the large catechism, like years ago, it seems like now and, and things like that. Uh, and, and it comes up a lot in our Lutheran confessions of how, how there's this constant temptation to take things that are good, that are fruits of faith, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is kind of what the Reformation's all about. And then, and then we make it into a law. We, we command it, right? And, and this is really one of the big rubs for us. And especially as we've been covering these monastic vows and so forth, we talked about very early on with this article that, you know, living intentionally in a Christian community is actually a commendable thing. We we very much, you know, would say that that's that's good. I mean, and for us, uh, we would generally begin it in the family, right? That's that's kind of your first uh, monastic community, if you want to use that kind of terminology and so forth. But where you should be intentionally living in in, in Christian faith and life there. Uh, but then we 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 take it and we we create an institution out of it, and it just kind of comes unraveling. And that's what's happening here with uh, this this giving of the property, selling of the property, and things of that nature, right? Is it, it was turned around and, and made into law now that it, it's no longer a fruit of faith that is done with, with an honest heart of living in the gospel. Uh, they've commanded it, and and it's part of the vow that you have to do in order uh, and, and to take uh, in order to, to join a monastic order. And so, yeah, that's that's what's going on here. Uh, Pastor Apple, anything to jump in with there with? Right, and, they, and they've commanded it to the point that they've they've ignored the faith that it should flow from. You know, Melanchthon brings this out really well in these paragraphs about the words of, of Christ in Matthew 19 to to follow him. Um, and, and that really being the key to understanding, you know, what Jesus says to the to that rich young ruler there in, in Matthew 19, that that apart from faith, whatever works that we do are are useless and pointless, that we've got to start in the right place. You know, as, as we've been saying, you know, put, we can't put the, the cart before the horse. Um, we have to start with, with faith in Christ, um, that our righteousness can't come from within us. It must be Christ's righteousness that, that comes to us, and the way we receive that is, is by faith. And Melanchthon brings that out here um, yet again that we've got to start in that right place of, of following Christ, not as a, a law, but as, as a, a gospel, right? That, that he's, he's done this for us. His word brings us to faith. Well said. Uh, Layman Slayton, I know you want to jump in here. Yeah, I think there, there are two themes that I, I see repeated here. Well, there's Obviously, there's more than two, but two in particular I see repeated in the, the Augsburg Confession and then in the Apology that, at least for me, have been very helpful in trying to parse my way through, okay, what are they actually talking about? What's that issue here? And the first theme is very evident when they're talking about comforting troubled consciences, comforting consciences. And that's this idea that there are people who are terrified by their sin who need to be comforted. Let's make sure we're pointing them in the right direction, that we're pointing them to the right thing where they can receive that comfort because you're actually supposed to be comforted. You're not supposed to be living your life as a Christian in constant torment and fear and uncertainty of, I don't know my standing before God, and as far as I know, God hates me, and he's trying to kill me. So that's that's one theme. The second theme is actually related to that, and I think that's what we're getting at here, and it's this theme of trust. There, who, who are you trusting? What are you trusting for your salvation? And here, the, the adversaries are once again pointing to 
a work that we are doing in order to trust. And that it, it especially comes out here in the, the line that says, this papal bull that says, abandoning ownership of all things for God's sake gains merit, is holy, and is a way of perfection. That, that's a matter of trust. You are placing your trust in this act that you are doing for God, for yourself, whatever it is. But those two themes I've actually found very helpful as we're trying to work through. Why does this actually matter? So this one kind of falls into that category of what it, what are we being told to trust in this case? And right here, it's giving things up. It's this vow of poverty that we're being told to trust. Well, and I think the interesting connecting theme there is is a point that we make on this show all the time. I, I begin the show talking this way, right? Uh, that, that what is the Lutheran Confessions all about? It's about being of one mind. That's the mind of Christ, right? Mm. Uh, so, so what are we pointing to, uh, right? Uh, that your first point there, we're pointing to Christ, His means of grace, the Word and sacraments, right? Uh, that that's where that's what we're told in Scripture to find comfort for our troubled consciences. And what do we trust? Ultimately, we trust Christ and his authority to to deliver us, right? And so these are the very things of faith, and, and then make Pastor Apple's point quite well as well, too, right? That then these things will flow forth from that faith. But but ultimately, when you're, when you're starting at the wrong place, pointing to the wrong thing or trusting in the wrong things, you're on shaky ground, uh, and, and that's, that's why this is such an issue. And, I mean, uh, again, you know, we, we've made this point many times, you know, we may be tempted to think, well, we, we, you know, yeah, monasteries are still around and there's a few out there and things like that, but they're, they're all struggling and they're small. And, you know, is this really an issue in the church anymore? And I, I just think that we can point to so many things where this is a, a part of our sinful nature that we start, uh, we start looking for the wrong things, and I don't want to belabor this point because we've talked about it so many times on the show already, but uh, we just start looking at the wrong things, and, and because we belong to certain groups and things of that nature, uh, we, we start, uh, yeah, we start pointing to the wrong things and trusting in the wrong things, and ultimately it leads away from Christ, and that's the danger. Pastor Hill. As we talk about that, this isn't like you very well said, Pastor Smith, isn't just an issue in church history. This is an issue for sinners today. It's an issue for me, at least I know my own sin in this regard, where I want to put my trust in my identity as as a Lutheran, or in having the right doctrine, or I, I want to cling for those own places where I have my own control and can say, oh yeah, I have this under wraps, I have this all figured out. But if I try to place my trust in something that I do, or in some identity that I have made for myself, I'm doing it wrong, and I am full of sin. And the only hope that I have is my Lord Jesus Christ, the one who called me to follow him, the one who baptized me, the one who feeds me his body and blood, the one who forgives me all my sins. Those are the very things that call me saved. There is no identity that I can choose for myself, nothing that I can commit to, no vow that I can take, or anything else that makes me holy. It is only Jesus. Absolutely. 
Uh, I think we're going to move on here at this point, uh, just because I think before we get to the break. Uh, so that was the the what we just began reading there with paragraph 47. That was kind of uh, the end of a second point that uh, our uh, one of one of our other hosts uh, had covered uh, last week uh, and, and finished up that thought, that point. And now we can move into the third point, picking up with paragraph 51 here. Uh, and we can probably get that in before the break, especially because it's something that we talked about just recently in a previous article. So I think we can hit that pretty quick here. So I'll go ahead and pick up paragraph 51 of article 27 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession of Monastic Vows says this. Third, chastity is promised in monastic vows. We have said above, however, about the marriage of priests, that the law of nature and human beings cannot be removed by vows or enactments. Because not everyone has the gift of chastity, Matthew 19:12, they cite, many are not successful at it because of weakness. Neither, indeed, can any vows or any enactments set aside the Holy Spirit's command. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. They're citing 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2. Therefore, this vow is illegitimate in those who do not have the gift of chastity, but who are polluted because of weakness. We have already said enough about this topic regarding this. It certainly is strange that the adversaries still defend their traditions contrary to God's clear command, since the dangers and scandals are clearly visible to all. Not even Christ's voice moves them. He scolded the Pharisees, Matthew twenty-three thirteen through 36, who had made traditions contrary to God's command. And so, again, we did just cover this. Uh, some refresh Was it the previous article is of the marriage of priests? Uh, I should have looked at This is just bad. I, I keep making... No, it's not. It's uh, it's the Mass is the previous article, so marriage of the priests uh, would have been... It's Article 23. Uh, article 23. Thank you so much for that help. Uh, so, yeah, we, we have just discussed that, and, and we discussed it at length because, once again, and, and Luther's kind of writing from the inside here. And as we've seen earlier in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession here, he's actually written a whole book on monastic vows. And they've even cited that here in the Apology and said, yeah, basically, we don't have a lot to say. You can just go read Luther's book on this. He nails it well, except for that they have actually a lot to say. Then that's typical Melanchthon, as we pointed out. <laughs> um, but uh, There's not but, much uh, to say four pages later. Right. And and so I, I'm, I'm going to follow in that tradition here and, and say, you know, we can talk about this very briefly. We've talked about it at length. You can go back and check out the archives and listen to us cover this in much greater detail. But anything to add here as far as you know here citing in connection specifically with the taking of monastic vows what's what's their connection here pastor ill vows aren't magical and that's the point that melanchthon is making here the act of taking a vow doesn't make someone chaste it doesn't give them the ability to be celibate uh, on their own and it doesn't remove all of their uh, desires that god has given as he has commanded us to uh, leave one's father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh there are some scripture teaches who are given this gift but simply taking a vow doesn't make it so that you have this gift and that's what melanchthon is really driving at here some people are given the gift of chastity and celibacy but it's not given to everybody and simply saying i'm a monk now isn't going to provide that gift for you 
That's an interesting thought that uh, you present there and and framing it this way, that uh, this isn't kind of a magical, just because you take the vow, it doesn't mean it goes away. I mean, you could really kind of understand each of these points that they're making in terms of taking vows in the same sense. You know, we're just talking about having property and kind of, you know, this is, again, natural desire to to have success and, and wealth and to build wealth and and, and things of that nature. Of course, all good gifts and blessings can easily become our idols, and we should always guard against that in the Christian life anyway. But but I think kind of the this this is an interesting thought that you present here of essentially their teaching is is that, you know, because you have this have taken this vow that, well, magically you're not going to struggle with want to build wealth anymore. Well, let's take a look at how that's turned out in history. Uh, that, that clearly is not uh, very effective in the uh, Roman Catholic Church or any church, really. Uh, we, we tend to do it in other ways, and we still have that drive. But then, yeah, it, it doesn't work. And, and that's the point that they're making here with Chassis. Just because you take a vow doesn't mean, and it's clearly not working. And, and they've cited earlier just kind of the the rampant sexual immorality that's going on even among the clergy simply because they have this vow and not allowing them to become married. That, that's yeah, quite interesting. Layman Slayton. Well, I think it's very easy, and I say this because I did it, in, in reading this to think that what they're saying is that chastity is unnatural, therefore nobody should be chaste and all men should get married. On, on my initial reading of this, that's what I thought the reformers we're saying. So what Pastor Ill said was extremely helpful that, no, what's being taught is they were taught that if you take this vow, you magically will be chased and you'll never struggle with this again. And the reformers are saying, that's simply unnatural. That is not how God has created things to work. That's not how this works at all. And so just taking a vow won't actually do that. The only thing that does that is those few individuals whom God has gifted with the gift of chastity. Those are the only ones who can actually say, uh, it doesn't work that way for me. I'm, I'm actually okay with this vow. So I found that That's extremely right. helpful. helpful. Well, yeah. and, I, and I would also add, too, that you know, by, by claiming that chastity is the only way for, for godly living and, and forcing the, those who, who take the vow into that unnaturally, then when they find themselves unable to you know, keep that vow of chastity, the vow itself, then, has, has actually taken away the remedy that God has given for godly living, which is marriage. I mean, so it, it ends up, you know, coming back and, and hurting them, them doubly, fooling them into thinking that, oh, I, I can do this. And then when they discover that they can't do this, it, it actually takes the, away, you know, the very gift that God has given to help them live according to his will in the, in the holy estate of, of, of marriage. Mm, yeah, Absolutely. And uh, obviously, it's not the only way of godly living, because just listening to the show is, is definitely godly living, right? And so uh, we're going to encourage you to come on back right after our break. Uh, we'll, we'll be with you in just a minute. This week on The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah. We'll preview the March Lutheran Witness about life together with managing editor Rachel Baumberger. And we'll talk with Pastor Greg Truey about the second annual marriage and family conference. We'll meet some extraordinary Lutheran school alumni. And we'll head to Lutheran camps to help parents plan for an outdoor summer tradition. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah weekdays at 9 a.m. on KFUO. Underwritten by Concordia University, Wisconsin. Did you 
Did you know that your individual retirement account may make the best gift to KFUO? The IRS now allows individuals 70 and a half or older to transfer their required minimum distribution directly to charity and avoid paying the associated income tax. These gifts can provide regular long-term resources to KFUO. If you have questions about making an IRA gift to KFUO, call me, Mary, at 314-996-1518. We'll send a representative out to help answer your questions and help you establish a legacy of giving to your favorite radio station, Worldwide KFUO. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The prophet Isaiah chapter 55 verses 10 and 11. Begin and conclude your day with the word that accomplishes the purposes for which it is sent. Morning prayer at 7 a.m. and evening prayer at 5 p.m. Weekdays on KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. The broadcasts of morning prayer and evening prayer are underwritten by Lutherans for Life. In the first year of the Civil War, Julia Ward Howe was touring Union Army camps with her husband and her pastor. Soldiers were singing popular marching songs, including John Brown's Body. Reverend Clark suggested she write new, more beautiful lyrics to the tune. Her first line to Battle Hymn of the Republic echoes Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. How enlisted biblical imagery from Revelation, Psalms, Job, Ezekiel, and the terrible swift sword described in Isaiah 27. In 1865, the hymn was sung at the memorial service of President Abraham Lincoln. Engage with the Bible and its impact across history. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. And welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue to make our way through the Lutheran Confessions where we seek to be of one mind, the mind of Christ, that faithful teaching that has stood the test of time. We continue to make our way reading through the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, and we're on Article 27 of Monastic Vows, and we've been working our way through beginning with Paragraph 47 today, and uh, we're going to be picking up here in just a second with Paragraph 53. Uh, we we kind of caught the end of a second point that Melanchthon was making uh, in reference to these vows and kind of how they've become corrupted and and are, are part of the issue, uh, what's going on here. And I don't think we made the specific point today, although we've made the point before. This article very much begins with the whole idea that what stands here is that it, it goes against that chief article of the Christian faith, the article of justification. Although uh, Layman Slayton certainly pointed us to that teaching quite well, and uh, what are what are, you, what are we pointing to for the comfort of our conscience, and what is our trust in, and and so clearly that that is all tied to the article of justification, 
that is Christ, uh, where we are to find that comfort and to trust in. And so these are kind of those those things that when it comes to the, the matters of uh, the monastic vows that are standing against that. And so we made a second point uh, in terms of the abandonment of property, taking the vow of poverty and things of that nature tied in there. Uh, that, that third point that uh, was uh, discussed more fully back in paragraph, or not paragraph, but article 23 uh, in terms of chastity, taking vows of chastity. And now they're going to make a fourth uh, point here, picking up paragraph 43. So I'm just going to go ahead and read that for us here. Fourth, those who live in monasteries are released from their vows by godless ceremonies such as these, the mass applied to the dead for profit and the worship of saints. Yeah, that makes actually the point earlier that we were making about, uh, you know, uh, the abandonment of property and so forth. You know, just, it's it's not magic, as Pastor Hill said. It, you know, just because you take a vow doesn't mean you don't have this desire for it anymore. Clearly, that's an issue for the Roman Catholic Church as they're, they're looking at it for profit, right? Okay, uh, enough of my interjection there. Uh, back to the text. In the latter... There are two faults. First, the saints are put in Christ's place, and they are wickedly worshipped, just as the Dominicans invented the Rosary of the Blessed Virgin, which is mere babbling, as foolish as it is wicked, and nourishes the most empty arrogance. Then, too, these very impieties are applied only for profit. Likewise, they neither hear nor teach the gospel about the free forgiveness of sins for Christ's sake, the righteousness of faith, true repentance, or works having God's command. They are occupied with philosophic discussions or preserving ceremonies that conceal Christ. We will not discuss here the entire service of ceremonies, the lessons, singing, and similar things. They could be tolerated if they were regarded simply as exercises, such as school lectures. Their purpose is to teach the hearers and, while teaching, to move some to fear or faith. But now the adversaries wrongly describe these ceremonies as services of God that merit the forgiveness of sins for themselves and for others. Because of this, they increase the number of these ceremonies. However, if they would use them to teach and encourage the hearers, brief and pointed lessons would be more profitable than these limitless babblings. So the entire monastic life is full of hypocrisy and false beliefs. Further, there is the danger some in these monastic communities are driven to yield to those persecuting the truth. Therefore, there are many important and compelling reasons that free good people from the obligation to this kind of life. All right, now they, they have some mention in here about uh, teaching and the ceremonies, and we've talked some of this before, too, especially uh, as we in the Lutheran Confession say that we preserve the ceremonies as they are given to teach. Um, however, we got rid of the things that were an abuse of it. And is is that kind of a return to this kind of notion? Pastor Apple, I, I think you uh, had uh, some notes uh, before our show on this, uh, uh, you know, the improper use of ceremonies and lessons going on there. I think there is a return to what they uh, were talking about there. And, and I, as we were reading it here again, it, you know, you, you can almost get the feeling um, from Melanchthon and the, the reformers that um, like what a, what a wasted opportunity that, that this really is that, you know, they've got this place for um, these ceremonies that could teach. Um, and rather than using those ceremonies for their proper use to, to teach the faith, to encourage, um, you know, toward holy, true holiness of living and, and, 
true trust in Christ, um, rather than using those ceremonies for that way, they're they're doing it godlessly. You know, they're they're using it for profit, um, worshiping the saints, um, attempting to to merit their own uh, forgiveness of sins and justification. And and so, you know, what a what a wasted opportunity. What what could have perhaps developed into to something very um, useful and beneficial for the church to to teach, you know, has turned into, as he says, limitless babblings. Um, so I think I think all the, the conversation earlier from the apology about the proper use of ceremonies fits in here as well. Absolutely. And they, they kind of pick on something here that I know is well loved by many. Uh, I, I know several, even, even former uh, uh, Roman Catholics, uh, who have now even come into the Lutheran Church and things like that? Yet yeah, they they think that it's a beautiful prayer, this uh, um, Rosary of the Blessed Virgin. They they you know obviously we have some issues with the theology at work there. Um, we can certainly discuss that, but they they call this a pure babbling, and I think this is an interesting relation to even the use of prayer. Uh, and how we rightly understand prayer, and and pointing to you know again this this distortion of what what is the purpose of this gift given to us? Is it to uh, encourage the faith, strengthen our faith, uh, point us to the to the right comfort of conscience, um, put our trust in the right things? Uh, the ceremonies all direct us to that in their teaching in a simple way uh, when when not abused. And prayer does this, and, and yet they, they call this a babbling, this rosary here. That's a, That's got to be kind of a rough language towards the Roman Catholics who rather love it. That, that's just a thought that I had, too, tying in with prayer there, also with the ceremonies and so forth. Uh, either of the Peters, anything to add here? Well, I, I think it's we're finally getting to the point once again circling back here at the end when they say they neither hear nor teach the gospel about the free forgiveness of sins for christ's sake the righteousness of faith true repentance or works having god's command so we've explicitly now circled back to that comforting the consciences and what are in what are we placing our trust what are we trusting um, and they've done it under the the set the category of teachings you know what is actually being taught here but that does flow backwards into all the other things because it's in this context in these services where they're also teaching about the chastity and how property property and living and all that kind of stuff. Um, but here, once again, Melanchthon is getting very specific. Look, here's what it's all about. This This is the thing that is missing from all of this. So once again, living in poverty... There's nothing wrong with that. You can do that. Living in chastity, there's nothing wrong. You can do that too in your Christian freedom. But you can't do any of those things if you're failing to teach, okay, what's the actual point? What are we actually trusting in? Where do we actually find the forgiveness of sins? It's not in any of those other things. Those are a fruit that grows out of that forgiveness of sins. I think it was Pastor Apple said that at the very beginning. You know, let's let's get get right back to that. The Christian life isn't about chastity or poverty or obedience or vows. The Christian life is about Jesus Christ who lives in those whom he has called his own. And so the focus is always on Jesus. Chastity, celibacy, poverty, uh, vows, order, all of those things can try to pull our attention away from Jesus. And this isn't just a Roman Catholic problem, but this is a problem for 
people. Uh, as Peter was talking before about concupiscence and that pull to sin and the corruption of the nature that we all have, we try, each and every person tries to find their own self-worth and self-satisfaction somewhere. But the real answer, the real reconciliation that we have with God is Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ. And, and while we also have that all that attention within us to, to corrupt these things and so forth, it, it is all the more wicked. And they have made this point many times in the apology here when you are actually very directly <laughs> opposing Christ. I mean, a, again, I bring up the rosary here. Well, how does that begin? Hail Mary, full of grace. Whoa, hold on a minute here. Who Who's the one that's full of grace? Who's the one that has the grace? It's Christ Jesus, right? Uh, and, and we should be praying focus and directed there. But here now we have a prayer commended to Christians to pray that is putting their focus entirely on the Blessed Virgin instead of Christ. And and yeah, sure, they'll they'll tie in things. And we still do this in our culture today. You know, we, we kind of attach Jesus and his name to it. And so they say, you know, the Lord is with thee. And oh, well, you know, that makes it a Christian prayer because we're, we're still praying with Christ here. Except that the focus, I mean, just the simple basis of the words, the focus is not on Christ. It's on the Virgin. And so this this is very much a, a direct thing that, that contradicts Christ and, and the focus being on him, the, the centrality of the gospel, and that's what's so dangerous. And, and, and we've gone through this again in, in the section on the ceremonies and so forth, where uh, specific things done in the ceremonies of the church at that time, uh, and we're still prone to this at, at, in our own day and age, where you know the focus is in the wrong place. And, uh, and, and so that's just the great danger that we have going on here. All right, we're going to go ahead and push forward here because uh, we might be able to finish the article today and then uh, get into some church authority and why you should listen to Pastor Sean Smith. Uh, no, that's not what it's going to be about. But, wait, uh, wait a minute, that's not part of the text. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right. But uh, Layman Slayton, uh, why don't you just go ahead and pick up reading there for us. Uh, paragraph 57 of Article 27 of Monastic Vows and the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. All right. Finally. The canons themselves release many who either without discretion made vows when seduced by the tricks of monks or when compelled by friends. Not even the canons declare such vows to be legitimate. Consider all these things. Clearly, there are many reasons showing that monastic vows made in the past are illegitimate. Because of this, a life full of hypocrisy and false beliefs can be safely abandoned. The adversaries object to this and present an argument taken from the law of the Nazarites, Numbers 6, chapter uh, verses 2 through 21. However, the Nazarites did not make their vows with the same opinion of the monks, which we condemn. The right of the Nazarites was an exercise or a declaration of faith before the people. It did not merit the forgiveness of sins before God and did not justify before God. Further, just as circumcision or slaying victims would not be a service of God now, so the right of the Nazarites should not be presented now as a service. It should be regarded simply as an adiaphoron. It is not right to compare a monasticism created without God's word as a service that should merit the forgiveness of sins and justification with b the right of the Nazarites, which had God's word and was not taught for the purpose of meriting the forgiveness of sins. The rite of the Nazarites was an outward exercise, just as other ceremonies of the law. The same can be said about other ceremonies required in the law. 
All right, I'm going to pause you there. All right. Because uh, we've, we've been working on the Nazarites here, and I'm going to throw it to Pastor Apple here in a second, so get ready uh, to talk about what the Nazarites and the Nazarite vow is. Give us some uh, identification of that here. Uh, but they're going to jump into the Rechabites here, and, and, and so they're kind of citing examples of these things here as they've come up. And so as, as we're wrapping this article up and this final point and so forth, what's going on with the Nazarites here? What's the Nazarite vow? What's going on there, Pastor Apple? The Nazarite vow is, is brought up here, first of all, because this is one of the examples in the confutation that the adversaries attempt to use to say that monasticism is supported by the scriptures. And, and so Melanchthon here responds to that, that argument by discussing what the Nazarite vow actually is. And if you, you take a look in Numbers chapter 6, that's where we hear about the Nazarite vow um, in, the, in, the, in the Word of God. And so it was a, it was a special vow that, that an Israelite could take. It, it could be made by a man or a woman. Um, it was a, a particular sort of pledge of dedication to the Lord, and it went beyond what normally was prescribed under the law. And, and in particular for the Nazarite vow, there were three things that distinguished it. Um, first was uh, a prohibition against wine, strong drink, um, pretty much anything made from grapes or grapes themselves you, you had to stay away from. Um, the second thing was you, you were not to cut your hair during the, the period of the vow that you took. And the, the third thing was that you were to stay away from, from dead bodies um, during the, the time. You were not to make yourself unclean by going near anything that was dead. Um, and normally, uh, a Nazarite vow would last for a specific period of time. There were examples um, in the Old Testament of lifelong vows, but generally they were for a, a set period of time. And at the end of that vow, um, the person would go to uh, go to the tabernacle, to the temple, to offer uh, appropriate sacrifices, to cut their hair, and that would be the end of the vow. Um, you know, many of our listeners may know some Nazarites and they don't they don't realize it um the the perhaps the most famous examples from the scriptures would be uh, Samson was a Nazarite um as well as um John the baptizer is is a Nazarite as well so that that's a little bit of a background as to to what is is being brought up here um by the confutation and then how Melanchthon's going to use that to say no you've you've really misinterpreted that passage all right, so so go a little bit further, and maybe one of the Peters wants to jump in here now. Great identification there. So so go a little bit further. Then how how does how is this misinterpreted? You know, as as being connected to monastic vows and, and the monastic order. Uh, Pastor Hill. So the opponents or uh, the authors of the confutation were saying, see, you have the Nazarites in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, and now we have monks. And so Nazarites are just an early form of monasticism. And to that, Melanchthon says, whoa, 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 slow down. He says that, one, the Nazarites were commanded by God, and God established this way of taking that Nazarite vow and what exactly that entailed in his word, and was very clear that it didn't merit the forgiveness of sins. It didn't make anyone a better believer or more faithful to God. It simply was a vow that uh, was open to them for a period of time. On the other hand, Melanchthon points out, those who embrace the monastic system are putting something in place that God has not commanded, and they're saying that it makes one more holy, and that it brings about a greater spiritual life than the lives of other normal people. And so that is the, the essence of, of Melanchthon's argument. I think we've got the, the exact same thing going on here uh, in terms of 
hermeneutic or how you interpret scripture, what is the, the method you use to interpret scripture, we have the same thing going on with the Nazarites as we did with the, the vow of poverty, where when you look at Acts and you say, here's all the new Christians in Acts and they're selling everything and giving it to the disciples, well, therefore, we must do the same thing and do it in the same way if we're going to be good Christians. And that's the same flawed interpretation of scripture as we're seeing here with the Nazarites, where, well, this is how these people were set apart before God. This is how they lived extra holy lives. Well, we're just going to do the same thing as monks, and this is how God wants us to do it. You can't, you can't read scripture in that way for either of those situations, because you're taking a text that describes what's going on and saying, this is how we're all supposed to do things. You know, you're taking a descriptive text and saying that actually tells us what we are to do, as opposed to saying, well, this describes one way in which the fruit of the Spirit has shown itself in these people. Yeah. There's another group that's going to be in here, too, and that's the Rechabites. And just a precursor for that, I'm going to throw that again to Pastor Apple to identify the Rechabites for us. But before we do that, Pastor Ill, go ahead and read uh, here for us a little bit. Uh, let's say uh, from paragraph 59 through 63, uh, that's a good section of the Rechabites there. Excellent. The Rechabites are also quoted. They did not have any possessions and did not drink wine, as Jeremiah 35, 6 through 10 says. Indeed, the example of the Rechabites agrees beautifully with our monks, whose monasteries excel the palaces of kings and who live most extravagantly. Yet the Rechabites, in their poverty of all things, were married. Our monks, although overflowing with self-indulgence, profess celibacy. Besides, examples should be interpreted according to the rule, that is, according to certain and clear scripture passages not contrary to the rule, that is, contrary to the scriptures. Certainly, our observances do not merit the forgiveness of sins or justification. Therefore, when the Rechabites are praised, it is necessary to point out that they have observed their custom, not because they believed, A, they merited forgiveness of sins by it, or B, that the work was itself a justifying service, or C, that it was a service by which they obtained eternal life instead of by God's mercy for the sake of the promised seed, referred to in Genesis 3.15 and Galatians 3.16. Their obedience is praised because they had their parents' command. One of God's commandments relates to this, Honor your father and your mother. The custom also had a particular purpose. Because they were foreigners, not Israelites, it is clear that their father wanted to distinguish them from their fellow citizens by certain marks so that they might not relapse into the impiety of their countrymen. But these marks, by these marks, he wanted to encourage them in the doctrine of faith and immort immortality. That is a legitimate reason. Far different reasons are given for monasticism. They pretend that monastic works are a justifying service. They pretend that they merit the forgiveness of sins and justification. The Rechabites' example is, therefore, different from monasticism. We leave out the other evils in monasticism, which still continue. 
All right, so we're going to pick nice up there. Nice little and side gonna... remark at the end, little swipe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's, Typical uh, Melanchthon. throughout, right? Yep, yeah. Yep. Typical Melanchthon. Papa Melanchthon, as we identified we go. him a, yes. a month or so ago, right? And and in, in the middle in here, too, I like, uh, this is a very Lutheran move. I, I, I call it the Pastor Timothy Apple move here, where we get back to the catechism, right? I, I love this little reference in there. Their obedience is praised because they had their parents' command. One of God's commandments relates to this, you know, honor your father and mother. I just love that. It's a, it's a move to the catechism. This is the simple teaching here, right? Uh, but uh, I'll, let's just go ahead and make a move to Pastor Apple then. All right, identify for us uh, the Rechabites here and, uh, and what's going on. What's the connection here? Sure, yeah. The, the Rechabites aren't one that I think we usually learn about in Sunday school, so I, I had to do some research on this. I had to, had to go back to Jeremiah 35. Basically, the, the Rechabites, as, as Melanchthon mentions, are foreigners. They're, um, they're not Israelites. They're Kent excuse me, Kenites, um, like Moses' father-in-law was. And in Jeremiah 35, um, Jeremiah is told by the Lord, bring these Rechabites into the house of the Lord, show them wine, and offer it them to drink. And and Jeremiah does this, and the Rechabites refuse to drink it. And the reason they give for refusing to drink it is because their, their father, uh, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, um, he had commanded them not to drink wine, not to build houses, not to sow seeds, not to plant vineyards, but to live in, in tents all their days. Um, and they'd done that faithfully. And, and so what, what's happening here is uh, Jeremiah is bringing them in as an object lesson. The Lord then commands Jeremiah to go ahead and preach to the people of Israel, look, here's a group of, of foreigners even who obeyed their, their father. They kept the fourth commandment, as Melanchthon brings out. So you should then obey the Lord, right? You should listen to him, to his word, hear it, believe it, obey it. And, and so, you know, it's it's terribly ironic that the adversaries would bring up the example of the Rechabites to support monasticism um, when the example of the Rechabites actually goes against monasticism, um, because monasticism is not paying attention to the commands of the Lord. It's paying attention to the commands of, of man. Um, and the Rechabites were, were were commended because they had listened to the command of the Lord, obey your father and your mother. <laughs> Always full of irony when you actually understand the, the real history of what's going on, right? Uh, we, we can say more on that, although I think it's a, a good, uh, you know, uh, identification that you gave us there. And I, again, it's kind of reasserting the point. And that I'm going to continue reading here. And if we kind of run up on time, I guess I'm okay with that. Because at this point, the apology is just a solid defense. It gives all of what we're going on here. And, and so a lot of this has already been covered and discussed. And so I'm just going to read to kind of get us out there. And, and if we have no time, that'll be all right. So I'm going to pick up with paragraph 64 here. The adversaries also quote from 1 Timothy 5 about widows. As widows served the church, they were supported at public expense, where it is said they desired to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith, 5.11 through 12 of 1 Timothy 5. First, let us suppose that the apostle speaks here of vows. Let us suppose. I love that. Uh, still, this passage will not support monastic vows, which are made of, for godless services and with the opinion that they merit the forgiveness of sins and justification. Again, we have made this point how many times in discussing this, but it's still a big issue. That's why, that's why we have the issue. Continue on. With ringing voice, Paul condemns all services, all laws, all works, if they are obeyed to merit the forgiveness of sins. That's a punch right there. Or he condemns the idea that because of them, instead of through Christ's mercy, we receive forgiveness of sins. Therefore, the vows of widows, if there were any, must have been different from monastic vows. 
Besides, if the adversaries do not stop misapplying the passage to vows, the prohibition, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. First Timothy 5.9 must be misapplied in the same way. So vows made before this age will be of no account. The church did not know this kind of vows, so Paul condemns widows, not because they marry, for he commands the younger to marry, but he condemns because when supported at the public expense, they became unchaste, thus casting off faith. He calls his former faith clearly not in a monastic vow, but in Christianity. In this sense, he understands faith in the same chapter, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than the unbeliever. Paul speaks of faith differently than the philosophers, does not assign faith to those who have mortal sin, so he says that people cast off faith who do not care for their relatives. The same way also he says the unchaste women cast off faith. That's what we've been talking about. We've been discussing it at length. What is central here is the faith, that doctrine of justification that Christ Jesus has died for you. He has made full satisfaction for your sins. Trust it. Find comfort for your conscience there. Trust in Christ. He has saved you. And all sorts of good works will flow forth from that. But don't look at the wrong things. Don't try to take vows and think that you're saved by them. That's the central article of what we've been reading through here in Article 27. Thanks for stopping by. And until next time, keep confessing, church. Mm -hmm.